Hebrews chapter 3. We've been working through the book of Hebrews, and uh, it's been very beneficial for us to consider uh, during this time. Um, it uh, was, uh, I think, very fitting uh, during the Christmas season to consider what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 and 3 about the incarnation of Jesus and what that accomplished for humanity for us. Uh, but now as we continue our series uh, today, I just want to look at a few verses with you in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. When we come to uh, verse 7 in chapter 3, we uh, advance from doctrine to warning. This is the second major warning of the book of Hebrews. Remember, the book is laid out as five sections of doctrine followed by five sections of warning. We're at the second major warning of Hebrews. It goes from Hebrews 3, 7. Uh, from my perspective, the whole way down to chapter 4 and verse 13. It's a large warning with an advanced argument, uh, and so we will uh, at least begin into that. It's been a real joy to see the doctrinal richness found in Jesus Christ in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, we saw that the, uh, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was a faithful apostle and priest and son, bringing a whole host of blessings to humanity. As we come to this warning today, I think that it's the author's intention to make his hearers uh, grow uneasy. Uh, one of the ways I think I can show you this is the very uh, way that he ended the last section. Look in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then pay attention here. And we are his house if indeed... We hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Here the author of Hebrews introduces what he's going to do next. He is concerned for the perseverance of those who uh, were reading the letter, perhaps those who heard his sermon. And so he says in verse 6, we are God's house if we hold fast our confidence. Now, this is going to be a theme in chapters 3 and 4. As a matter of fact, I think it's very clearly expressed a little bit later. Look in verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. A very similar uh, sentence here. It says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm unto the end. He says, We are partakers of Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In both of these texts I read to you this morning, uh, chapter 3, verse 6 and 14, you have an effect and a condition. The effect is we are God's house, he says in verse 6. And then in verse 14, he says, we are sharers or partakers in Christ. I think what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's using Hebrew parallelism. He's describing two synonymous things. You're God's house, household, people. You are partakers in Christ. Same thing. But both passages also have a condition. You see that? You can see that very clearly in verse 6 and verse 14. If, indeed, both passages. Verse 6, if, if indeed you hold fast your confidence. Verse 14, 
if indeed you hold your confidence firm into the end. Again, I think he's using parallelism here, describing two similar thoughts. And, and so he's using these conditions, I think, to make his hearers grow a little uneasy. Modern English, when we use conditions, uh, sometimes we do it to make people feel uneasy. Uh, people get nervous when we start using conditions. We like, like unconditional promises and blessings, but when you put a condition on it, it gets a little nerve-wracking. So, for instance, if I were to go to my children, just give you an example of this, if I go to my children and I would say, after church today, we're going to go out to eat. Uh, they would get excited. They would get excited. Just from personal experience, they would get very excited, some of them far too much. If, however, I said, after church, we're going to go out to eat today if you rake the leaves, mow the grass, clean your rooms, and uh, do the dishes, they would grow anxious. Uh, and they would know that there's probably no way that we would go out to eat for lunch today. <laughs> you start using conditions, it makes people nervous. Here, these two verses, these two effects and conditions establish, I think, the key theological idea of this large warning. The large warning goes from 3, 7 to 4, 13. And here's the key theological theme. You only enjoy God's rest if... You remain firm in your faith until the end. That's what chapters 3 and 4 are meant to warn us about. You only will enjoy God's rest if you remain firm in your faith until the end. Now, the way the author makes this point is he will highlight the stubbornness and the rebellion of the Israelite people. And so today I want to look at uh, the first part of this passage. I think that this warning takes on three forms. There's a quotation of Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Then there are lessons from the quotation uh, in the verses that follow. And then finally some strong warnings from the citation in Hebrews 4. Today we'll look at the quotation itself. Look in your Bibles at Hebrews 3, 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Today we're going to look at the quotation itself from Psalm 95 that the author of Hebrews uses here to start his warning. I think to start the warning, he, the author quotes scripture. Um, this adds significance to a writing to quote an authoritative source like this. Of course, the writing itself is scripture. But he quotes scripture, adds significance and weight to his argument. First, century authors, as far as I can see, they love to quote an authoritative source at the beginning or at the end of their arguments, their literary productions, and he does it here right at the beginning. 
Now, the author intends to introduce this quote, and he does so in a very unusual way in Scripture. You notice the important introductory formula he put here. He said, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And I think we should stop and we should think about that for a moment. Here, the writer of Hebrews ascribes the Psalms to the Holy Spirit. He is quoting Psalm 95, and here he attributes it to the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews has a high view of Scripture. I mean, you get this? He is quoting Scripture and says, as the Holy Spirit says. And men and women, this is how we should view Scripture as well. High view of Scripture. That's why we look at the text so closely, right? Word by word paragraph after paragraph, because these are God's words to us. So the author of Hebrews can say, as the Holy Spirit says. So let's look at what God said through the psalmist by paying attention to two subjects within this citation. I've just got a very simple two-part outline today. First, we notice the subject Israel in verses 7 through 9. In verses 7 through 9, the author talks about you at the beginning. Uh, Look at verse 7 in the middle of the verse. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. In this citation of Psalm 95, you refers to the psalmist's original hearers. I think the psalmist may be David, David's original, King David's original hearers in the psalm, the Israelite people. And to better understand, though, in verses, really this whole passage, what he's doing, I think you have to, you have to notice that there are three different contexts at play. Uh, that is, there are three different passages that you need to consider. The author of Hebrews is quoting a passage from the Psalms, Psalm 95, which is narrating or commenting on a narrative found in Numbers 13 and 14. So in other words, if you're going to understand this passage, just do so quickly, you need to know these three texts. You need to know the Hebrews passage, the Psalms passage, and the Numbers passage. So just turn in your Bibles back to the Numbers passage. Turn to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. So we're going to do this very briefly. I want to read to you a portion of this uh, passage, Numbers 13 and 14. As we turn back to Numbers 13 and 14, uh, you need to understand more of the actual events that the authors, David, the author of Hebrews, cite or describe in their text. If you were here last week, you know that we looked at Numbers 11 and 12 to see that the Israelites' failures in the wilderness actually began a little bit before Numbers 13 and 14. Uh, There, it, it started with the Israelite people complaining about the manna, which put Moses in a place to complain, and he complained about the ministry that God had given to him, and then Miriam and Aaron complain about Moses' importance among the people and his wife. But as we come down here to, verse, to chapter 13, this is really where the failures grow to their highest point. I want to read just a few passages with you. Look at Numbers 13, verse 1. 
says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Then go to verse 25. 25. This is, uh, I believe, the historical narrative that the psalmist David, the author of Hebrews, is referring to when he says, don't complain, don't put God to the test as the Israelite people did in the Old Testament. Look at verse 25. At the end of 40 days, so you see the reference to 40 days, they tested God for 40 days. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we were able to overcome it. Then the men who, had, men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by our sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let's skip down to verse 31. This is God's response to this sin of the people. But your little ones, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and then and they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. These are the events, I think, that the author of Hebrews in the Psalms, the author of the Psalms, quotes or refers to, alludes to, in their passage. The events they are considering uh, refer to the failures of the Israelite people when they hear the spies report and they refuse to believe that God can give them the promised land. So years later, 
the psalmist David comments on the failure, these failures of the Jewish people that led to them being judged by God for 40 years. In Psalm 95, the second passage, David starts with an initial call to praise to God. This is the passage that Pastor Paul read this morning. He starts with a call to initial praise to God, and then he he gives some reasons why God should be honored. He is, and you remember this passage, he is the rock of our salvation. He is a great God, a great king. In his hand, the psalmist says, all of the depths of the earth are located. And as that psalmist concludes in the middle of that passage, uh, and we are like sheep in his hands. Yet the psalmist knew that his readers, his audience, might hear and know these things about God. He's a great God. Everything, all the depths of the earth are in his hands. And yet, they might grow hardened to it. They might grow hardened to God, just like the first generation of the Israelites did when they were confronted with a report about giants, right? They hear about the giants and think, there's no way we can get the land. They, they've grown hardened in their heart. They rebelled in their ways against God. And so David is concerned for the people in his generation. That's why he starts with this, this word. He says, today, today, David makes this relevance, this story, the first generation of Israel, for his readers, his hearers. Today, if, giving a condition, if you will hear God's voice. I mean, I just described his greatness in all of these ways to you in the psalm. If you will hear his voice, you do not harden your hearts as in the day of of the rebellion of this generation of Israelite people. So David is using this narrative, Numbers 13 and 14, for his own audience. But he's not the only one who's concerned that believers in Jesus Christ would grow hardened and fail to consider the greatness of God. The author of Hebrews is as well. That's why he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11 in full detail. I think that the author of Hebrews is doing this to draw a parallel between his audience's situation and the situation of the Old Testament Israelites. Although the children of Israel had the opportunity to see God's powerful hand at work for 40 years, they failed. So the author of Hebrews is using this example of rampant unbelief of Israel under Moses' leadership to warn his own readers. Now, interestingly, one of the commentators that's reading through this text, Robert Gramacki, drew a parallel here, which I think is fairly significant. He said not only had it been, had the children of Israel experienced 40 years of judgment in the wilderness, he said, if you look at this through the lens of the author of Hebrews and his readers, it had been approximately 40 years since Jesus Christ's physical presence had been removed from the church. 
So if you do the math, the, the book of Hebrews is written in about 70 AD. Jesus Christ is resurrected and ascends to heaven in the early 30s. It's been about 40 years since Christ had been taken away. And so I don't want to press that analogy too far. I think the point is clear for the author of Hebrews. He is confronting his own readers with this an example. It's easy to grow hardened to the character of God and who he is in our hearts. So uh, he uses Israel as an example. Now, verses 10 and 11, I want you to notice our second subject, and that's God. I want you to notice our second subject, and we'll go th quickly through this. Verse 10, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here, the subject changed from you, you and your Israel to I, and this is referring to God and his response to the Israelite people. The text basically says God responds in two ways to the sins of the people of Israel in the first generation. First, he was provoked with them, and secondly, he, he spoke. The words was provoked um, are powerful words, especially when used of the creator God. The words was provoked are only used here in this passage and again in verse 17 in all the New Testament. They're unusual words for the author of Hebrews to use, but uh, they are powerful words. Uh, the words mean to be angry, offended, or provoked, and they speak of the fact that God was morally incensed over the attitude and the unbelief of the children of Israel. So, just so you understand the citation, God was incensed at them, so then he did something else. Number two, he spoke. Or as the text says, he swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. When the author of Hebrews says that God swore, it means that God took an oath. Okay, and there will be other times in Hebrews when God takes an oath. When God takes an oath, it is impossible for him to change his mind. Very serious thing. Here, God was incensed with the sin of the people, so he took an oath that they would not enter his rest. That would, of course, be the promised land in the Old Testament. And so for 38 years, the people remained in the wilderness until every one of the adults died except Joshua and Caleb. That's God and his response to the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel. So today we've watched two things. We've seen two things. We've seen Israel's failure, and then we've looked just very briefly at God's response. As we close our sermon today, I want you to just consider this for a moment. God remains the same today. God is never oblivious to what is going on. We know that he is not only the sovereign one of Israel in the Old Testament, he is our sovereign one today. God still rewards his followers when they demonstrate faithfulness and punishes those 
who claim to follow him but are faithless and don't believe him. In the sovereign plan of God for our church today, we have seen an example of faithlessness. We've seen Old Testament Israelites get in trouble and pay the consequences. In just a few moments, we're going to see an example of faithfulness. Our missionary partners who gave 46 years of their life to serve in Brazil. Today we won't be able to see and touch their reward. But God is not oblivious. We will give a gift to this couple today, but that is nothing compared to the eternal reward that they will receive. So each one of us today will be confronted with a choice. Two examples. The faithfulness of of a group of people who did not believe in the power of God and the faithfulness of others who believed that God could use them. Will you waste your life following self-centered dreams and goals like the first example? Or will you pour out your life in strategic ministry and worship to God? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come before you in prayer today. We want to rejoice in what this text says about you. You are the creator God. You respond to human plight. You respond to human disobedience. And nothing, nothing has the power to change you and your plan. Lord, as we consider the example of the Israelite people in the first generation I pray that its message would be clear to us today. Lord, help us not to have hardened hearts to who you are, but help us to be men and women who remain firm in our faith and our commitment to who you are. I pray that you would use every piece of this service, and we're thankful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.